Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light. Each week I speak to leading thinkers from around the world about Robert Menzies, his life, his era and his enduring legacy. Hello, and on today's episode of Afternoon Light, I am talking to Dr. Jeffrey Wilson, who is the Australian Industry Group's Director of Research and Economics, and he specialises in international economic policy, which is one of the reasons why we are talking today. Welcome to Afternoon Light, Jeff. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Georgina. It's a real pleasure. Well, it's um, my pleasure. And the other day you joined me and uh, many others for a dialogue here in Melbourne. You're in Perth, so it was very special to get you over to Melbourne for a dialogue on Australia's dilemmas then and now. And you gave such a fascinating presentation on the international economic environment Australia faced in the 1950s and how we can learn from that or not um, in the present day with all our geoeconomic challenges. So I wanted to start our discussion by asking you, what was the international economic environment like for Australia in the 1950s? Can you paint a picture for us? Look, it was a real time of change. And I think it's something that now without historical distance from it, people have forgotten quite how much change that immediate post-war period was for Australia. You know, for the, for the century and a half before that, Australia had been, for all economic purposes, part of the British Empire, part of the British system of free trade, part of the British banking system. It was British investors that financed most of the building of Australia up until that point. And after the war, you have this period where Australia moves into a new set of international relationships built around, at the time, Western institutions like the precursors to the WTO, a new relationship with the United States that hadn't existed before um, the Second World War and also the, the kind of undoing of many of those imperial structures of the British Empire. So it was a really for Australia, the 1950s was a time when we had to say, well, how do we make economic sense in the world, not as a part of a 19th century British global economic system, but as part of a 20th century American-led economic system? Our role had to change. It happened quietly and slowly, and we don't think about it now, but it was a big shock for Australia to not have those kind of structures of history and empire in the way that we had for six or seven generations up until that point. Yeah, the the other day you were mentioning when you say Australia then and now and a sort of historical comparison that we look at the 30s, and I guess, you know, the 30s, of course, I mean, we look at today's situation and think, oh, you know, lead up to a great war, you know, a world war potentially come out of a, a huge economic crisis, the depression of the of the 20s, you know, are we sort of back to the 1930s and let's try and look, look to the 30s. But you found in this recent research that actually looking at the 50s was almost more helpful and you you I mean apparently according to you don't want to put words in your mouth enjoyed the task but why Jeff do we look automatically to the 30s as a point of comparison rather than the 50s well look it's it's a real across a whole heap of topics it's a really common trope that the 2020s look like the 1930s you know this is a time when old political systems broke down there was a rise of populism, both on the left with socialist and communist parties and on the right with fascist parties, international economic stru- – there was Great Depression, huge trade warfare between a lot of Western countries as well. 
you can see the emotional appeal and it has that catastrophizing element, the 30s mm. too, like because we know what happened after the 30s. So when if we're feeling a bit negative about the future, we look at today and we go, oh, we're on the path to, to darkness because we now know that's what the 30s were. But the reason I'd probably argue that the 50s might provide us a bit of historical metaphor for today is that we're also in a time of building at the moment today. You know, what we can see... I'm sure many people are familiar with the many of the global geostrategic and geoeconomic challenges Australia's facing. You know, the big trade bashing from China over the last two years is, is just one of those. Um, but you can see that the way Australia and many other countries are trying to forge new relationships amongst not necessarily fully allies, but friendly, like-minded countries where there are relationships of trust and shared values um, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework launched by the Biden administration that we're part of as part of that, like an attempt to create a new grouping of countries that are like-minded that will be able to have have productive economic relationships because it's become clear having an economic relationship with a country like China, which we've had for a long time, is just, just not viable in the way it was. No. I like the um, looking at the 1950s, though, as a, an analogous time because the ending is a little bit better than the 1930s. I mean, let, let's, let's try and be optimistic here, at least the 1950s. Well, we had a Cold it, it, War, sure, but in terms of, of massive global conflict, we didn't end up there, and we could have. And, and that's, I think, what people forget is the 1950s and 60s, there were many times when Australia, as an ally of the United States, that um, we we were on the precipice or felt we were on the precipice of something really, really terrible, and it didn't eventuate. And there are many reasons for that. But yes, to to look at always say, oh, well, this is our Munich moment, and you know we're back in the thirties. <laughs> yeah, mm. some good things came out. A lot of good things came out of the fifties that we don't think about. And mm. just my parents, it, like, my yeah, parents and, came out of the fifties. Well, yeah. Your parents may have too. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, yeah, um, but certainly born born just inside. But yeah. um, but like just on the economic front as well, we talk about the Cold War and nuclear weapons. But on the economic front, all of the key global institutions for rule making that supported globalization that we we've had all date to that period in history. The World Trade Organization was originally the GATT, which was this the seventeen Western allies after World War Two mm. said. We need a trading system so we can effectively take our wartime alliance into a peacetime economic arrangement. The IMF, the World Bank, the OECD, all of the key institutions that we, we, we worry about them now because they're in trouble in the 2020s. But for a long time, 50 or 60 years, these guys were the traffic cops for economic globalization. And all of these were founded and built up and established in the 1950s. So really, you know, Probably that last generation that got to enjoy the fruits of globalisation without its downsides really actually over fifties for all the stuff we had during that period. Yeah, and those Bretton Woods institutions, as they're as they're called, sort of more broadly, they obviously benefited hugely from US leadership in this in this domain. Um, the United States comes out of World War Two. Um, determined to work on its trading relationships, liberalise the global economy. Australia was a little bit out of place there. It joined in with the United States in forming these Bretton Woods institutions, but uh, our instincts were much more protectionist than the United States at the time. But this sense of, of US leadership in the 50s when it came to 
the um, international economic architecture. It's something we miss these days a bit, isn't it, Jeff? It, it is. And, and in a way, at the time, Australia would have said, in the 50s, Australians were asking a question about growing that US relationship. We're asking the same questions about Britain. Yeah. Um, when we've had that long period of the empire and, like, you can't overstate how much of a, a period of radical change and how much bravery was on part of Australia. We were but only just federated. Australians still had British passports, for example, still had presumptive rights to British citizenship. This is separate to the monarchy elements that can continue today. We were part of a British free trade zone. Nearly all of our migration came from Britain or one of Britain's colonies, so if it was Canada or New Zealand or something. And America had been this kind of strange country, you know, off to the side. It had not been engaged with the Anglosphere. For much of the 19th century, it had an antagonistic relationship with Britain after its independence. And, you know, we've gone through these two wars and now we've got these Americans and and they're the economic power. Like America ends the First World War with over half of the world's manufacturing capacity in one country. Yeah, sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds a bit yeah, yeah, yeah. eerily. Everything's eerily familiar. <laughs> What's old is and, new and, again. And the Brit- 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 Britain's in ruins and, and the British system can't send people and send money and provide trade opportunities to Australia like it did for 150 years. And then there's these Americans. And so we've got to make sense of that. And and there's a similar thing, like I think the claims about American retrenchment or are, are overblown. America today is in a much healthier state than Britain was in the 1950s. Yes. Yeah. But... But there is this, still this element of how does Australia think that wh- who else are we going to be looking to and how can we foster those relationships that are trusted, mm. which is really important as well. It's not just here's a country that's big and they will buy lots of our stuff, but how can we have confidence that that's going to be a long-term relationship and we can work across lots of areas and we're comfortable with that. It was it, it, It's forgotten how tricky that was with the Americans in the 50s and and. and Thus, it is again now, right? Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Well, Australia didn't sort of collapse in a heap and say, oh, well, we were, we were exporting all these agricultural commodities to, to the empire, you know, Britain. And I think in 49, when Menzies was elected, something like 65% of our exports went to the Commonwealth. Um, and, and then by the time. And it would have been, it would have been wool. And it would have been yeah. wool, wool and wheat, wasn't it? Pretty much. Wool and wheat. Yeah. Um, but, but. You know, we didn't just sort of collapse in a heap and go, oh, God, Britain looks like it's going to join the European economic community, so then they'll be shut off and, and you know, what, where's the, where does that leave our farmers and our, our economy? No, we, we were problem-solving, weren't we? And we looked, we looked north in the face of pretty huge domestic opposition, um, not least our manufacturers, but, but also just general public sentiment that Japan, as it ended up being, was um, – not you know shouldn't be the sort of trading partner of choice, but we but we did it. The Menzies government embarked on a massive project to sign a commerce agreement with Japan, but but also really expand our export into Asia. It's strange to think about this. I have a little bit of personal insight because my one of my PhD supervisors is Stuart Harris, who was the inaugural secretary of DFAT when the departments were merged. But interestingly, his first job after university, he's he graduated from Melbourne University and he started in the trade department in 1956 oh. and he was sent up to Japan for the negotiations on the commerce oh, agreement, uh, which was signed in 57 later that year. And, you know, it obviously wasn't alive at the time, so this isn't my anecdote, but um, you know, he told me that it was very much kept under wraps. Australia had just had 
we'd had not just a war with Japan, but I think most listeners know some some pretty horrific history in, involved in some of that. And there was strong sentiment in the community, particularly from Pacific War veterans around those things. And for a government to then go to the electorate after that experience and say, and we're also making a pivot to Japan and we're not sending them wool or food or wheat, wool or wheat weren't place. We're looking for coal. We're looking for iron ore, you know, the, the means of mm. industrialisation. Mm. Just after we've spent this horrific experience trying to fight the Japanese industry, we're going to be part, we're, we're going to reindustrialise together. That was very, very hard. Yeah. But you, you can understand why that would be hard for the community to take. And it was it was a hard fought thing. There was, and, and the level of leadership required for that. I, I guess I would consider there is a parallel in what Australia's trying to do with India at the moment. Now, mm. it obviously doesn't have a wartime legacy, so it should be politically easier. But, but it is that sense of here is a, here is another country that's starting off on its own path of economic development, industrialization. We've got a lot of complementarities, but we just, we haven't had the political connection. We haven't had the business connection. We, we haven't had the person to person connection to the level that we, we do have with other countries. And so how do we start that as well? And that's this, you know, when, when things change, being able to go and say, okay, here's a new trusted partner. How can we make that work rather than receding into the, Oh, I'm a bit upset because we had this thing announced not working. You know, that, that was, that defined the agenda for Australia in the world in the fifties. And, and so it does, does now with a different set of countries and a different set of times. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. And, and how do we learn then, Jeff, from the experience of Australia going into Japan and, and building up a relationship from, from one that had really been one of us animosity to, to one that was incredibly constructive. I mean, Menzies and, and his trade minister, Deputy Prime Minister John McEwen, had to make the argument to the Australian people that, as you said, we, we have to help Japan industrialise because um, an industrialised and economically successful Japan is much likely, much more likely to be a peaceful Japan and a Japan that can be independent too because there was a sort of a sense, well, if Japan's just a rubble, and defenceless, then it will be exposed to threats from abroad. And obviously there was a communism concern at the time with the Cold War of China and the USSR. I mean, would it be America and its allies? So that's Australia coming in to defend a, a weak Japan. Well, you know, did Australia want that burden? No, we want a strong, peaceful Japan who's on our, who's on our page too, who's, who's in our corner. Um, and not then, open to going down the communist route, for example, if they were going to develop instead of ties with Australia and America, economic ties, it would would it have been China and USSR? I mean, there's a there's a real sort of sliding doors moment there, isn't there? And how do we how do we learn from that in in this day and age? There's, yeah, look, and I th- some things that they're in common, one's definitely the political aspect. In, in going with Japan, it is in the early Cold War, there is this spread of of autocracy that's hostile to us in that case, the USSR and China as communist regimes to, today very clearly from, I mean, just what we've seen, you know, as we're recording this today after the um, Chinese ambassador gave a speech at the National Press Club that was, well, in my personal view, outrageous. But mm. in, any, in any event, we are seeing that again. 
And and just as the question was, well, what what kind of effective relationship can we have with Japan? There's a political one, obviously, that's that's done at a government to government level. But how can we build out something at, in our economy and in our society that links that? So it's not just heads of state and foreign ministers. How do we put a put an architecture under the that? Yeah. So was the same question with India, where we've got this this very strong diplomatic relationship, but the societal stuff and the trade stuff just isn't there. How long can you sustain a political connection if the rest of the boat's not rowing with it too? It, again, in, in a similar era. The other one I think is important is, is dispelling the sense of there is no alternative. In the 50s, the idea, for, I think for a lot of Australians, particularly we were less urbanised at that stage, so a lot more people had a rural, rural upbringing, um, the idea that there was any alternative to wool or wheat to the British Empire would have struck people as mad. And there were certainly a lot of people who argued against our coal and iron ore export industries to Japan at the time because, oh, you can't do it. It's too expensive. It's too hard. We're a pastoral economy. There is no alternative to wool to the British Empire. You have the same argument about coal and iron ore to China today, for which where we've had 20 years, these are huge $100 billion trades. Australia's a mining economy and the biggest mining customer in the world's China. There is no alternative to iron ore and coal to China today, right? Mm. And and being able to say there's industries of the future with partners of the future that was coal and iron ore to Japan then, and it's going to be a whole different set of things to a whole different set of partners now. But overcoming overcoming that sense of what we've done for the last generation is the only economic option for yeah. Australia in the world yeah. was something that had to be fought in the 50s as well. And it's the same question we've got about trade diversification today as well. Oh, it's so interesting. I mean, you're, I think you're around my age. Um, you would remember in the 80s we were still saying that, what was it, Australia's economy rode on um, a sheep's back? You know, wool was our big thing, our big export. Whereas, you know, now I mean, all, our, all everyone would say, oh, you know, it's those um those big ships off the off the northwest shelf and off the coast of WA and out of out of um, New South Wales that are taking our coal, iron ore exports up through the South China Sea and into into Chinese ports. That just is how we define our export economy, export driven economy. But of course, yeah, forty years ago. It, it did seem quite different and 40 years before that, different again. So, um, yes, being alive to the fact that economies do change. I mean, Australia is blessed with resources, uh, wide open spaces, arable land, um, obviously rich in resources and minerals and ores. So, so we, we, you know, obviously make the most of our own natural advantages. But we do have other advantages that – and you spoke about this the other day um, – that we don't necessarily exploit um, or trade as effectively as we could. So it's being creative and open. And right, I mean, it's – there's a kind of uh, – uh, there has been a natural laziness in Australia, hasn't there, with, with exports and export industries that we sort of go for the easy the easy wins. And why wouldn't you? You'd go for the easy wins. They're well, easy. One of the downsides is, is, as you said, we are so well endowed. Like, And, and Australia is a, it's a very rich continent, particularly mineral resources. It's a geologist's dream. Everyone wants to come and work in Australia. And, and it is easy just in the way that when uh, after white settlement, wool was easy. It was this huge continent and it was all grass paddocks and you could just get the merinos and let them loose. 
I think if anyone's watched that show out that ringers about the guys in those cattle stations in the Northern Territory that, you know, the, the size of Belgium and they have to muster <laughs> all the stock with helicopters, like that was what it was like. You just yeah. let them go. Kind yeah. Of thing. yeah. Um, and and it, it was hard. And, and there is always an element to when you have something that's relatively easy to exploit, you know, why would I stop doing that? This is working for me. But what happened in the 1950s was the political situation changed for Australia in the world. There was the Cold War. America became our political and security guarantor, and it became the largest it was the largest economy in the world. It was the wealthiest, um, and Britain was, was none of those things that it had been, you know, really only 10 years prior. Um, and so Australia had to rethink it. Mm. Um, so too now when if we were having this discussion Five, certainly 15 years ago, that description would have been China for Australia, which would have been this huge market and you could just sell more of it. It was was a billion of them and there's only 25 or so million of us. They could eat every apple we grow, every bit of milk, every tonne of iron ore forever kind of thing, which then led to that there's no alternative. This is both easy and there's no alternative. Mm. But just because something's easy doesn't mean that there's not. The alternative might be more difficult, but you have to kind of do it. And it's political circumstance, again, that's forced this on Australia. Like, no one's willing this. I mean, it would have been pleasant if neither of these political cleavages had happened, but they're outside our gift. So the question we've got to ask ourselves as a nation, which we did in the 50s, is, well, we can't change that. What do we do to thrive in the new environment that we've got? Yeah, so... So, and and that, that's what Menzies and New McEwen had to deal with. And that's what, you know, two governments in a row now have had to deal with here. That, that's right. And then on top of it, we've got the overlay of COVID and how that has, I mean, that's impacted the not just the global economy, of course, it's impacted the global economy and impacted the ability of people to move freely. And obviously we've had huge supply chain disruptions. But what's going on, I think most concerningly now is is what, is the Chinese economic consequences and how that plays out globally and, you know, for Australia. A China facing a recession? I mean, five years ago, you just couldn't have imagined it. It's just, I mean, and this is where... Well, and the, the, the worst that, part, it's yeah. self-inflicted. Yeah, it's totally. It's self-inflicted. So, yeah, like yeah. Their commitment to COVID zero is, it's even even the World Health Organization said you cannot, it's the nature of the Omicron strain, the thing is just, it, it's less lethal, but it's far more virulent. You cannot mm. continue. And, and for political reasons, because of its autocracy, the president has said we're going to eliminate COVID and no one else in the system is able to say you can't boss, right? Yeah. And so how long this is going to be the case in China? There's some speculation whether after the party congress, Let's, you know, endorses Xi Jinping for the third term, which is the one that breaks the two-term limit rule. Then maybe, then maybe we can start making some different decisions. But, but who knows? Um, and, and I think for Australians, we really have to rethink also that reliability of whatever our political relationship with China was. Just as an economic partner, like they made good economic decisions, mm. they're now making bad economic decisions as a function of their bad politics. And and so the question is, well. Is that maybe there's no alternative to not because you can't rely on China's decision makers making rational economic decisions in the way that we could for the last generation. No, and 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 people have have foreseen that China may get old before it gets rich, which was different, of course, for Japan, which at least got rich and then got old. And as you were saying, you have a you have an an aging China, um, a China that is still not quite 
pulled all its population out of poverty. There's still a lot of people who are living in very, very desperate circumstances in China. But it's a leadership that puts control, the party's control over society and um, and those sort of political concerns above leading a population out of poverty. And the economic imperative of a democracy is that you have to keep society progressing and growing and economy growing and delivering for your people, otherwise you get booted out. And we try the other lot. Well, it's not a, it's not a democracy. So expectations in Australia that, oh, well, the, you know, the Chinese leadership will suddenly say, well, COVID zero is obviously not working. It's an unrealistic proposition given the, as you say, the virulence of the Omicron variant of COVID-19 and that surely you just want to get on with it and go back to growth and, and, <laughs> and normal things like a normal government. But, but no, we can't expect that, that Xi Jinping and, and likewise Vladimir Putin, they have a very different decision-making matrix. What, what concerns them, their imperatives are about power and control, not necessarily about delivering for your nation. Well, there, there has been for a long time a, a real lot of pragmatism. China's been a, an authoritarian one-party state for its whole reform era. But when it came to a lot of these issues, there was pragmatism in the policies. It was the economic space where you could see mm. things that were, would work and were necessary, even if they weren't completely ideologically compatible with party rule. You know, and this is one of the most dynamic market economies in the world in the system that's supposedly state socialist. That was a, that was a marker of, of the pragmatism of the Chinese system towards economic policy issues. In recent years, that that's really started to disappear. We've seen crackdowns on companies simply because they're considered a political threat to the regime. Um, we've seen, I mean, we had an experiment as an island with COVID closed borders, which has left us actually with a huge migration deficit for the last two years. But China's continues as well. You know, that's the, these are the countries that closed their borders to the world during COVID completely. Australia, New Zealand, Taiwan. China. Mm. So we've, we've, we've bizarrely, but they continued, they continue with that. And that's a different China to, I think, what a lot of people in Australian positions, particularly business leaders and decision makers that you've been in the game for 20 or so years, we've grown up in an era where you could trust that the Chinese political system would make sensible, would be sensible in terms and pragmatic in terms of economic policy making. And, and it was for 30 years, but that's really it starts coming apart and COVID has made clear that that's not going to be the case anymore. So it forces you to then, just as we had in the 50s, to reappraise, well, and we keep betting on riding the sheep's back to the British Empire. <laughs> it, it, it wasn't what it was 10 years earlier. So, so too for us today is, is, is China's not what it was 10 years earlier. And, and that's, that's, I guess, why I can really see that. You know, something externally changes and some deeply held expectations that we had had of a partner that worked when they changed suddenly. It is hard. Yes. You you know, it is hard to adjust your expectations when the other parts of the relationship just ups and changes one morning on you. But it's happened. It happened in the 50s and it's happening again. Yeah. So where to now for Australia in the 2020s? As you say, the the market in China is is uncertain. If you're a smart policymaker... Let's hope they are smart policymakers, the ones in, uh, <laughs> in government. What should they do? We talked about Japan and the US in the 50s and China now, but one thing I think is a bit of a worry is that we go looking for the next one. That there's this idea that Australia has to be one thing. 
We did wheat, we did wool and wheat to Britain. And then we did coal and iron ore to Japan. But there's just a handful of commodities and just a handful of partners that are going to be our economic future. And and while this hasn't seeped into official language, you've heard from either government leaders for, from the Morrison government or the Albanese government now, or business leaders, there is certainly on the street some talk of well, what's the next China, quote unquote, the phrase. And, and then there is a huge amount of expectation bundled into our hopes for the relationship the economic relationship between Australia and India. Is mm. India the next China for Australia, right? I think that's quite risky for us because that it, it's suffering an eggs in one basket problem. Yeah. Um, there, there was a lot of Australian exporters over the last two years who copped very draconian sanctions, certainly. But, you know, here in Western Australia, we had a lot of problems. The barley industry lost its major market overnight. Rock lobsters, 90 8% were going to China and then one day gone. That's their whole business wiped out overnight by a political event. That was because we had, we put every egg in the China basket. And I think there's a risk if we say, well, we just need to get all those eggs out of the China basket and, and whack put them, them into in another basket. Yeah. So really we <laughs> need to diversify yeah. then, Jeff. I mean, we, we need, yeah, we need a lot of baskets yeah. rather than these, you know, the British basket and then we go to the Japan basket and then the China basket is just shifting that one basket along. <laughs> well, and China for us 30 years ago was a response to Japan in the 80s. Yes. You know, had its bad recession and then it had really low growth and we took the – the eggs out of the Japan basket and put them in the China basket. Now there's a China problem. We'll, well, where can we put them? We need more. We need to be looking for more than one basket yeah. in Australia. I think yeah. that would be that would be the mistake we don't want to repeat of the past. But it, it, it's about partners, and and we don't want to overdo. India will be an important economic partner, but it's not it's not the hope of the side for everybody. And we should be realistic about what we can and can't do. It's also about what we do ourselves as well. Like when you have a new partner, you also have to bring something different to the game. And, again, when we're looking for the new China, we might also be looking for the new iron ore. You know, we had wool and then we had iron ore. And what's the next big export? A resilient Australia in a geopolitically um, shock-filled world and dangerous world, let's be honest, after what's, what we've seen over the last week with Taiwan, it isn't one that, it, that is d- trading with a lot of different partners in a lot of different commodities. And if for some reason something goes politically wrong with one of those relationships, you've got depth in the set. Yeah. Um, we, we have to get away from – it's important to realise that the China relationship's not going to be what it was. The solution to that's not let's just drop in another product and drop in another market and we're sorted. That, that, it'll, it'll happen again to us as well, right? And and obviously there's been um, with the with the deterioration of the relationship with China and it, it's not just Australia that's been borne the brunt of um, China's geoeconomic punishment. It's uh, you know been Canada, um, you know, Norway, is it um, uh, Mongolia and the Philippines and Korea? I mean Japan. I was there in Japan over the rare earths um, trade embargo. These, the, you know, countries have borne the brunt of this over over the last sort of 10, 10 years or so. the 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 question is, 
are there new economic clubs forming and, and how can Australia be part of this? Because we were talking before about this amazing US leadership post-World War II in terms of the trade liberalisation agenda and, and really developing the, the international economic institutions that we, we all take for granted these days that are under huge threat and huge strain. And you can certainly blame the United States for a lot of the issues with the WTO, but you know China's certainly trying to change change up the rules um, when it comes to international economic institutions too, creating its own, modelling them in its own in- image and trying to drive its strategic agenda through things like Belt and Road. Where does Australia see itself and, and where should it go when it comes to these new economic clubs, especially if we have a, a sort of decoupled kind of bifurcated global economy, um, which seems to be the way the way things are going. I think what we what we need to remember is is also apply that same principle. We need eggs in lots of baskets. So it's not not a case of doing one thing with one or another. Um, a, a country that I'd single out, we've already talked a little bit about India, but a country that I'd single out as actually a country of the past in a way, Japan in our metaphor, right? Mm. Um, you know, Japan's been an important trade and partner for Australia since the 1950s and until China took it over, it was number one, still number two. But Japan had not exercised for most of that period a lot of international leadership. It it had come out of its wartime experience. It had this pacifist constitution, which meant it couldn't really have a defence force. In Asia, there was legacy of war as well in a lot of countries where Japan was going to be very shy and going forwards yeah. because of what happened during the Pacific War throughout most of Southeast Asia and with Australia as well. But something really interesting has happened with Japan's view on itself in the world over the last five or ten years. Really, There's a lot of people that should take credit for this in Japan, but... Um, Prime Minister Abe, terribly recently assassinated, was the guy who who led this the most, that said a Japan that can actually exercise international leadership. And you get that going right back to the Trans-Pacific Partnership Trade Agreement, this Obama-era innovation. It was a club between those like-minded countries. It would be very high standard rules looking towards new industries rather than, than old ones. And then Trump gets elected and the Americans pull out. And everyone goes... It's rooted. Um, and what's really interesting is that Japan, for the first time, says, no, we can save this even without the Americans. And Australia, Japan, Singapore work together and put that thing back together. And it now exists as what they're calling the Comprehensive and Progressive Partnership for the TPP. And there's a door open for America to rejoin. Um, and we've seen this happening ever since that time a lot where in a lot of global forums where Japan had kind of quietly sat back and let someone else do the rulemaking, that they were involved, but they were a veto player. They weren't, they were, they were following behind rather than jumping off the front. Japan has lost its inhibitions about yeah. that. The, the, the post-war era for them is over. A lot of this is driven by their perception of China. And if we think we're worried about China, imagine being Japan. Yeah. Well, they've um, just had missiles coming yeah, down into their water. water. Exactly. Yeah. No, they, they have every reason to be to be concerned. I want to then ask you, Jeff, um, so yes, Japan's taken this, you know, quite extraordinary step of, of global leadership in terms of trade and, and, and in, other, in other arenas as well. Obviously, the, the development of the Quad, um, the sort of partnership between India, US, Australia and Japan on, on international security issues is, is quite, a, quite a remarkable step forward for a country like Japan that had been so committed to pacifist constitution and, and really 
being a player in sort of quietly in peacekeeping operations but not getting involved in some of the big sort of um, military challenges of the last um, couple of generations like Australia has with the United States. But what about Britain? So Britain leaves the EU, well, it has its referendum in 2016, um, which for people like me, I was very excited. I, I thought, you know, yay, we can have this. I mean, they were calling it Global Britain. So Britain out of the strictures of the European Union so it could sign its own trade agreements, have its own independent foreign policy. It could disagree with the EU or, or agree with them, but it was able to have its own independent voice. Is what's old new again? Can we can we look to Britain? Is it a big enough market to be worthwhile for Australia? Maybe it's another one of those baskets we could put the eggs in again. <laughs> they were once in there, <laughs> moved it along. Oh, we... I think we could disaggregate some elements. Like there is that search for a market that will buy our stuff, quote unquote. And Britain has something to add there, but it's not. You know, over this, over the time, Australia's caught up to Britain in many respects. Our population gap's a lot lower and our GDP gap's a lot lower than it's ever been before. So Britain is not a giant. We're 14th and they're 9th in the global economy. Like they're not heaps bigger than us anymore. So there is certainly a lot of trade opportunities there, particularly in some of the technology spaces. So I wouldn't deny that Britain's not going to be a basket we can chuck all the eggs in. But the other aspect, and when you mention global Britain is actually its footprint and role for leadership in some of these things. I think in a lot of cases, Australia's not necessarily looking for we want a country that will buy our things or invest in us. But what we're really looking for is a, a well-governed rule set by which those things can happen in normal commercial markets. You, you don't need to politically negotiate a trade relationship if you've got a well-functioning global economic governance system. Businesses can just get the hell on with it. And Britain has a lot of capability to do leadership on that front in the G7, in the G20, in the OECD. And while it's not an economic example, I would look to the way Britain has responded over Russia's invasion of Ukraine as an example of where you can have British independent leadership coming out again. It's a diplomacy and support of Zelensky in the early days, the level of support that they've provided to that, just the arms, just the arms transfers, you know, arms, the people of the supporting Ukrainian war effort, it goes US, UK, I think Australia's number fifth. We, I think we rank higher than Germany in arms mm. transfers to the Ukrainian mm. army as well. It's, it has really demonstrated that in a difficult, complex situation where a lot of European countries got very awkward, they were worried about gas, they didn't know what to do. Britain has, Britain has demonstrated its capability for decisive leadership in a crisis that probably would have been smothered under a collective EU response. Yes, that's um, right. What I'd yeah. to see is them do that in the economic sphere. Could, could we see them doing that in the trade and economic sphere too? That yes. would be really helpful for us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and their leadership on the sanctions imposed on Russia, and that you know, that bit bit them. They mm. they weren't as reliant say, as Germany um, or Bulgaria on um, Russian gas, Russian energy imports, but the Russian economic interests, financial interests in London in the city in were London, were huge, yeah. and they you know certainly were punishing themselves in order to mm. to put pressure on Putin. Um, tell me, Jeff, to finish off. What about the um, – I mean, when we talk about the global economy, of course, energy is a massive issue uh, and we're, we're feeling the pinch here in Australia, but, you know, I don't mm. think we're feeling anything like they are in Europe and, and, and Britain. Um, energy has 
And you think of World War II and the lead up to World War II, the Pacific War particularly, Japan is feeling mm. constrained. There are blockades of energy exports going to Japan. It, it feels one of the reasons why it did what it did um, and was expeditionary in its um, battles across the Pacific was it wanted to um, shore up its energy supplies and, and have that sense of independence. We're once again seeing the securitization of energy and energy markets and feeling the brunt of it where to where to from here for for a country like australia that has rich energy resources and exports but we've also given our long-term contracts put ourselves in very difficult positions um when it comes to to our gas industry and and the like Mm. I mean, just on the home front, a lot of the energy problems Australia has at the moment are somewhat self-inflicted. And it is a function of being a very energy-rich country. You don't have to think very hard about the security of your energy system and the way you've got the market designed because you produce tonnes and tonnes of the stuff. It just takes care of itself under normal times. The problem is when you get into a crisis like this, the lack of good design in that system exposes itself. Um, but this, but this Australia is extremely well endowed with hydrocarbons and all the renewables. So on paper, we're one of the most energy secure countries in the world. I think we probably are the most energy up, would be up there with the United States and Canada on that front. So that one for us is really just to use this as an opportunity to get out, get our own domestic house in order. And how can we not have energy when we've got so much of it, which is a bit ridiculous. Internationally, this is an opening. Um, for Australia, um, particularly when you look at some of the renewables transition. There's a lot of studies that say that Australia is the most well endowed, like we're a Saudi Arabia of solar mm. in terms of that. And particularly when you look at our close trade partners in Asia, some of the, we are on the doorstep of some of the world's most populous, urbanised, energy-intense and renewables-poor countries um, in the, all throughout Southeast Asia. Um, so this is really something that Australia could seize. The, the question for us is how do we get all the sunlight that falls on our giant, largely unpopulated continent? How can we bottle that somehow to sell it to Asia because it's not coal and it's not gas? Mm. Um, so there's questions about whether we could build interconnectors. You know, we've got one from Tasmania to Victoria, so yes. you could get one from here to Singapore. It's doable. Um, where we could use something like hydrogen, which is basically a gas, like natural gas, but you make it out of um, renewable solar. Um, and and so the, these are some of the challenges. And they're the same challenges we had in the 1950s when it was considered inconceivable that we would dig up coal and ship it halfway around yeah. the planet. It's big, it's bulky, <laughs> it's price-to-weight ratio is terrible. You have to burn half the coal in the ship just to get the ship to get it up to Yokohama. <laughs> no one could ever, like, this was insane, the doubt has said. Um, and, and so for, for some of that, like, I actually think the energy security question for Australia is how can we use, can we use this, the, the way that this crisis has focused international attention opens a huge door for us. The question is, what are we going to do, just like we did in the 1950s, to walk through? Yeah, yeah, and and how and how quickly we can make the most mm. of those opportunities too. Well, they've got a long lead time, and if we want the industry in ten years' time, we needed to start two years ago. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jeff, mm. 
Thank you so much for this fascinating discussion. Um, I really enjoyed it um, and I really enjoyed your contribution the other day at our um, dialogue on Australia's dilemmas then and now. It's absolutely fascinating and uh, make sure you keep writing about the 1950s because I think we all all have a lot to learn from from then and, of course, from Menzies. So thank you very much, Jeff. Oh, thanks so much for having me on, Georgina. Really appreciate it. The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you. Thank you.